All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is likely going to be episode 204. We may be shuffling a little bit as people on some of the social media will recognize if, in fact, that happens. But we're calling this 204. We're going to revisit Bernays. This is perhaps the most in-depth coverage of Bernays um, that's been done. And the reason this is interesting, just so people know why we're covering this in, in, uh, in more detail, it mirrors what's going on in the world doesn't it? Uh, Bernays, as much as any single human being that we can point to, probably, 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 uh, changed the United States and the culture and Western culture more than any individual. We can set aside who he's related to, where he came from, all these things, which we won't and we shouldn't, but for this conversation, we will. Basically, if you boil this down to why it's a big deal, it's because all these suggestions were made to the public and the public changed the way they act by their own motivations to follow the suggestions that were made. You could call it mass distraction. You could call it consumerism. You could call it materialism. You could call it any dang thing you want to. But at the end of the day, humans chose to do what humans chose to do based on basically suggestions. And that's a little dismissive. These are a bit more than just your average suggestion because they're in your face. They're amped up to a level that had previously not been seen in most cases. But the point I'm making is everything that changed our society based on what Bernays did could have went the other way. If people would have just woke up one morning and said, you know what? I see all this information about breakfast, but I'm just going to keep eating breakfast the way I ever did. But that's really not the way it went. What they actually did is they said, instead of skipping breakfast or having a cup of coffee or a, a small pastry, I'm going to start eating bacon and eggs and pancakes and all this other stuff. But I just wanted to frame why we're going back on it. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So it's a heck of a thing. Um, what Basically, what we could boil down to suggestions. I mean, do you agree? We, we could actually call what Bernays did is mass market suggestions. If the controllers didn't know how to manipulate people before Bernays, they got it figured out after. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think the fact that we can relate him to Sigmund Freud as what we like to often say is he, he's the double nephew, which is a weird thing to think about. He's the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. And if we pointed out endlessly, regardless of what happened in the history we're not really aware of or before times like Freud and Jung, um, these dudes figured out how to hack the mind. And it was not lost on any of the power circles. Um, they were part of the power circles. And not only that, well, well, we'll get into it. But I mean, do you agree with all that? This is really the line in the sand where the idea started to be, hey, we can hack the human mind and get all these results. I mean, what do you think? There's no doubt about it. Once Bernays started doing what he did, that was the end of society as it was before. And we're talking around the 1920s here. That's what really set the 20th and later 21st century into motion, the way we are now, the mass consumerism of the Western world. And just a, a few of the, I guess I won't call them minor, but a few of the offhand things that he did um, changed the world in rippling ways that are overwhelming. And I'll point out a couple. Used to be two meals a day. You can look up suppose Rome documents where anyone who ate three meals a day was a glutton. You didn't break your fast until noon. And if you did, you were considered gluttonous. 
Um, think of the obesity and everything that came on the tail of everyone switching the way we used to do breakfast to bacon and eggs and pancakes and basically what is actually defined as a heavy breakfast is good for you. Um, that one little thing going from two meals a day for most people on some level to three meals, that first one being the most important and a big deal that becomes epidemic if you look at the obesity. But there's another one, uh, the smoking. The reason women began to smoke can be laid directly at Bernays' doorstep. And uh, that too had rippling effects with all the cancer and deaths and everything we could say about that. But anyhow, if you don't have anything to add, we've got a lot to get through. This is the most in-depth look that we've done of these ideas. This is the most in-depth look at Bernays that I've seen anywhere. To compile these notes, I was jumping between, I don't even know how many sources, and even the biography that I was pulling things from didn't have everything the way I did it here year by year. And I still know that there are things I didn't get in here. So I really wanted to show the setup for just how Bernays went from being a very young man to doing things that were unprecedented. The manipulation he set into play is mind-numbing. The things that he was doing in his early 20s, it's just unbelievable. Well, let me point one thing out before you jump in, um, and there's a lot here to jump into. If you wake up one morning and you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to go to the beach today and I'm going to have a good time, and you happen to see an advertisement for this new TV, and it goes into depth about why this new TV is great, and it changes your mind instantly that that's something you want, that's something you need. There was a choice that was made there. Had you not seen that description of the TV, that advertisement, that whatever you want to call it, you would have went to the beach, the TV never would have entered your mind. But if you made the choice that it does matter, um, all of a sudden you've changed your basically the way you live because maybe instead of going to the beach, you're going to get a TV. Or you've made plans that you will get the TV in a week or two or whatever it may be. You can see what I'm pointing out here, the dichotomy. It basically is on us. The decisions we make are our own. And if we're not grown up enough to walk through a world that's smeared with advertising, the path that we could have had in life will be drastically altered by the decisions we make simply because we saw a picture, we saw a commercial, these types of ideas. Anyhow. It's all you, Jason. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed. Our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. Our invisible governors are, in many cases, unaware of the identity of their fellow members in the inner cabinet. They govern us by their qualities of natural leadership, their ability to supply needed ideas, and by their key position in the social structure. Whatever attitude one chooses to take toward this condition, it remains a fact that in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, 
in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons, a trifling fraction of our 120 million, who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world. Written by Edward Bernays in his book, Propaganda from 1928. 1928, he was a young, young man. And um, for an opening bullet point that says just about everything you would need to know. But unfortunately, the things that are left between the cracks that the average person may not get to, we will cover here. But even if you just listen to that paragraph again, uh, you'll know something about modern life. And by the way, there was a time not too long ago when these types of ideas and these types of truths played no role in the lives of human beings in this country. A person in Kansas City would almost certainly leave a vastly unique and different life than a person in Oklahoma or anywhere else in the country. But with the onset of the ideas expressed here, the homogenization and the commonality of common experience begin to come into play. And that's why all this is so overwhelming. To review, Edward L. Bernays was born on November 22nd, 1891 in Vienna, Austria. This is also the year that Sigmund Freud published one of his earliest papers. This ties in because Edward Bernays was also Sigmund Freud's nephew twice over. Bernays' mother was Freud's sister Anna, and his father was Eli Bernays, the brother of Freud's wife, Martha. The year after Bernays was born, the family moved to New York. Edward Bernays would go on to graduate from Cornell University in 1912 with a degree in agriculture. Instead of becoming a farmer of any sort, he chose a career in journalism. It's always interesting to see the uh, acceptable posted timeline. So let's see, 1911, he was just finishing up his little Cornell degree there. He was born on 11-22. What's that dirty tree in a turd there? Um, To make a bad pun, go ahead. It is important to note before we go any further that Edward Bernays took what he learned from his uncle, Sigmund Freud, and applied it heavily to his own work. Freud believed that all humans are unconsciously driven by sexual and violent desires, but that these emotional impulses are kept in check or repressed by conscious social norms. The masses were also thought of as irrational and subject to herd instinct, and Edward Bernays outlined how skilled practitioners could use crowd psychology and psychoanalysis to control them in desirable ways. In the past, customers largely bought new items according to need, such as purchasing a new shirt once an old one had torn, as opposed to closets filled with largely unworn items of clothing, as is common today. Bernays reasoned that unconscious urges for sex and power could be used to sell people products they didn't strictly need, but rather he used emotion to create a desire for a particular product and that purchasing said item could also reflect the buyer's personal identity. Hey, man, you all still thinking about that TV I mentioned in the opening? I'm just kidding here. Um, There's some important ideas here that a lot of people dismiss. There are people who poo-poo the idea that sexual desires and violence drive 
but the point I would make here is it really doesn't matter. These ideas are proven over and over and over. When we did the Tavistock research, there were actual studies, exhaustive studies to prove that the things said here have been proven to work, almost like an alchemical process. And the one thing that drives home for me and what Jason just outlined is the idea of herd instinct. This is one of the studies that I read. It is proven that an individual on their own will act differently than a human in a group. There's crowd mentality, herd instinct, all these words for what happens when you get what the elite like to call the masses, which they actually drop the M on, referring to us all. Um, here's the problem. If you didn't believe this was true, all you'd have to do is look around you right now. What's being manipulated is the herd instinct. We could sing a song like da 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 die corona to make a terrible pun. Um, that's what's going on. That's what's being manipulated. Not the individual, not the lone human being, the herd. And it works. It's working right now. Look at all the fear and nonsense around uh, colds right now. Following a meeting in New York with his school friend Fred Robinson, Edward Bernays became co-editor of the Medical Review of Reviews and Dietetic and Hygiene Gazette in 1912. They distributed free copies of the publications to thousands of physicians across the country. You know, Jason, every time I see that word hygiene, it just feels creepy. I mean, what's your reaction with all the research we've done? When you see hygiene or hygienic, it just feels dirty, doesn't it? It's an interesting word, yeah. This whole thing is like, what taught him, gave him his earliest notions of how you can get something out to the masses and manipulate a point of view from a single source. These ideas and these words creep into eugenics, the idea that somehow you have to have a hygienic society and clean out the portions of that society that don't meet your standard, just really kind of creepy, creepy, creepy. Anyhow, go ahead. In the following year of 1913, Bernays had his first venture into public relations when he learned that the actor Richard Bennett planned to produce a play called Damaged Goods that warned of the dangers of venereal disease. This was an extremely controversial subject for the time, and this fact was making it difficult for Richard Bennett to raise the needed funds to put the play on. Edward Bernays volunteered to assist. Bernays set up a sociological fund committee to finance the production and rally public support for it. Bernays enlisted a large amount of New York City's notable figures. In doing so, it made it so that no one, especially anyone wishing to censor the production, would question the total respectability of the play. Damaged goods opened without any troubles and would instead go on to be called a valuable contribution to public awareness. It would even be performed at the White House for President Woodrow Wilson. Edward Bernays' first public relations campaign was a massive success. This led him to become a theater and music promoter. He was concentrating, at first, on productions that promoted serious and enlightened reformist agendas. These were real issues with women, who are a major part of several reform movements of the 1800s and early 1900s. They were very serious issues, as opposed to a lot of the fabricated, splitting and screwing up of the sexes that we are seeing so much of today. These reform movements sought to promote basic changes in American society, including the abolition of slavery, reforms to education and prisons, 
women's rights, and temperance, which is opposition to alcohol. (laughs) Funny because the exact opposite is going on today with alcohol. That's a fact. Bernays was, at this time, living in what is known as the Progressive Era. Many of the core principles of the overall progressive movement focused on the need for efficiency in all areas of society. This mindset was coming after what was considered the excess of the previous Gilded Age. Purification to eliminate waste and corruption was a powerful element. The progressives also supported worker compensation, improved child labor laws, minimum wage legislation, a support for a maximum hours that workers could work for, graduated income tax, and the aforementioned women's issues such as the right to vote. So the last part of this seems pretty clear. The rich and powerful went too far. There's your steam release. We're going to start legislating things that make people feel better. But up at the top of this, you know, let's ask some simple questions. You're reading it. Uh, I went right to Citizen Kane, which I'll get to in a minute. So you got this thing about venereal disease with a striking title called damaged goods, and it's not going to fly. So Ed Bernays gets in there. um, And what's he got to do with stage and theater? Well, turns out he ends up being a big theater and music promoter. All the world's a stage, everybody. And right now, Bernays is one of the stage managers. But as this was being read, I think this correlates perfectly with the movie we always hold up. It's always voted number one, Citizen Kane. Uh, In that movie, this country calls the paper and says, what the hell are you guys printing in your paper? There's no war here. And Kane says, what are you talking about? There absolutely is. The paper says there is. That reflects exactly the power that's being realized at this point to take something like venereal disease plays and simply by the written word and pushing over and over that this is important, this is respectable, this is going to the White House makes it okay in the eyes of society. It's unreal. Um, It's the patina of what used to be all over the newspaper. There was a perceived patina that if it made the newspaper, it was authoritative, it was acceptable, and it was real. Um, We still kind of have that now, a little bit of that all over the internet. But the point is, is people have come a long way. Look at the news now. You're going to die. There's only a 0.003 chance you're going to die. If you walk out your door, there's a 1% chance. It's actually less than walking out your front door. But there is this disease right now that is so dangerous that all the headlines are going to convince you that you can't travel. It's the same game over and over and over. There it is, Jason. And let's not forget that Bernays would have been somewhere around 22 when he had his first massively successful campaign. So many of these people we look at, I mean, you can't even use the words early bloomer anymore. It's pretty clear these dudes were educated at a level and it didn't help that they were probably extremely brilliant. And I don't know if you're going to cover this, um, but there are certain races and I'm you know, I'm saying this because it's true, it's provably true, where their IQs are usually off the charts. The Ashkenazi is one. I don't know if we'll make that connection later, but go ahead. In 1914, Bernays next promoted the Broadway comedy Daddy Longlegs, which was about poor orphans. For both this and the previous play, Bernays described how he had, quote, taken the socially significant idea in the play and associated with it a newsworthy group that supported it. This approach led actors, reporters, social workers, and specialists from numerous fields to create Daddy Longlegs support groups, along with fundraisers for orphans, human interest stories in magazines, cartoons, and even a doll that was promoted by a famous race car driver. 
Edward Bernays was able to create an entire multifaceted culture around Daddy Long Legs that sustained it for some time. This reminds me of the initial Star Wars culture and fan base that sprang into being after the release of the first film in 1977. Bernays, as the play's public relations council, became a creator of news events that he had circulated through a variety of available media at the time for a coordinated effect. Bernays was already on to the public relations strategy of creating circumstances for the news. To define this further, it was not information being reported on, but something made a topical event contrived to provoke interest and produce the desired effects. In Bernays' time, this was primarily done by keeping whatever he was promoting at the time in the newspapers for all to see, which meant he had to relate whatever the subject matter was to the acceptable news of the day. He became a master of this. And in the long run, he completely changed the idea of Hollywood and what a star was. And an example of this is the Daddy Long Legs. What's, he's, what's he doing? Well, the equivalent of what he did for Daddy Long Legs would be to get someone like Tom Hanks to back what you're doing. Because everyone loves Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is trusted. So if Tom Hanks is associated with it, it's automatically back in the news. But it gets that extra little chutzpah, pun intended, to put the patina of an important personage that everybody loves next to this idea. And this led later to the whole wholesale kind of monetization on the commercial level of what a star could do to promote a credit card or anything else. Um, and to make a point under the table here, it's just a shame that Tom Hanks has come down Corona if you follow the precise line of reasoning we have just laid down. Bernays would continue utilizing his skills to promote other artistic endeavors, such as the singer Enrico Caruso and the Diaghilev Ballet Company. When Bernays took on Diaghilev's Ballet Russus American Tour in 1915, he wrote, I was given a job about which I knew nothing. In fact, I was positively uninterested in the dance. He wasn't alone. Americans thought masculine dancers were deviants and that dancing was not nice and of limited interest. Bernays began to connect ballet to something people understood and enjoyed. First, as a novelty in art forms, a unifying of several arts. Second, its appeal to special groups. Third, its direct impact on American life, on design and color in American products. And fourth, its personalities. Beginning with newspapers, Bernays developed a four-page newsletter for editorial writers, local managers, and others, containing photographs and stories of dancers, costumes, and composers. Articles were targeted to his four themes and audiences. For example, the women's pages received articles on costumes, fabric, and fashion design. The Sunday supplements received full-color photos. Magazine coverage, timed to appear just before the ballet opened, was his next approach. Bernays tailored his stories to his editors. When Ladies Home Journal said that they couldn't show photographs of dancers with skirts above the knees, he had artists retouch photos to bring down the hem. His abilities to understand editors' needs resulted in wide coverage. The American Hebrew, Collier's, Craftsman, Every Week, Harper's Weekly, Hearst Magazines, Harper's Bazaar, The Independent, Ladies Home Journal, Literary Digest, Munsee's, Musical America, Opera, Physical Culture, Strand, Spur, Town and Country, Vanity Fair, Vogue, and Woman's Home Companion. Full spectrum, 
Full spectrum, absolutely. Bernays created an 81-page user-friendly publicity guide for advanced men to use on the tour. When a national story about the Ballet Russes appeared, advanced men could tailor it for local coverage. Does this sound familiar? The guide contained mimeographed pages, bios on the dancers, short notes and fillers, and even a question-and-answer page that asked, Are American men ashamed to be graceful? He persuaded American manufacturers to make products inspired by the color and design of the sets and costumes and national stores to advertise them. These styles became so popular that Fifth Avenue stores sold these products without Bernays' intervention. Bernays used overseas media reviews to heighten anticipation for the dancers. When they arrived at the docks in New York, a crowd was waiting. Bernays then took photos of the eager crowds and placed them in Sunday magazines throughout the country. The ballet was sold out before the opening. By the time the ballet toured American cities, demand had already dictated a second tour and little girls were dreaming of becoming ballerinas. Bernays had remolded biases to get his story told. The American view of ballet and dance was changed forever. So. This was a long time ago, and this is the early reach out for what I call full spectrum programming. But even as Jason went on, it became full spectrum on steroids. But the underlying idea here may be lost on some people because of the nature of how we have to deliver the information. So let's go back a minute to the idea of how Americans thought about dance. Now, people can remember this supposed puritanical time um, way back, but there was an idea. And it does precede my lifetime, but my mother and my father uh, educated me pretty well about what had gone on in their lifetimes, where dance was like a thing that was used when young men needed to meet young women. For the most part, a lot of dance was considered hypersexualized for the norms of society. So that's what we're talking about. The norms of society were, I guess we'd call it puritanical now, it's not really, uh, but that's what was changed here. The very foundations of the mores of how we existed here and how dance was accepted or not accepted and the role of men and women all being shuffled around. And this is a long time ago. We're talking 1915. And we said full spectrum halfway through the paragraph. By the time Jason got to the end, I'm saying full spectrum on steroids and international. So now you know how the common cold becomes oh so much more. If you look at what he did, a similar technique was used to make the Beatles the biggest thing ever. And I actually wonder if Bernays did a better job decades earlier. You know, I was just reading some more um, about this very topic, knowing that it's a complete Tavistock put up every every facet of that thing. And it's it's so bizarre because you can't really imagine a world without that music. Um, and it it so encapsulates that period of time um, that there's really nothing to be done here. It is what it is. Um, but I was reading that the people who were doing the full spectrum program to make the Beatles so big were laughing because the Beatle was the dung beetle and the Rolling Stone was that dung being rolled. The idea from those people was look at this higher minded music we grew up, Chopin and 
Beethoven and all this really involved high-minded music and they were giggling as they pushed out the Beatles and there's even an interview when the Beatles come into the country where someone asked whichever Paul we're looking at there um, do you guys actually think you're real musicians how do you stack up against real musicians you can go look up that interview to absolutely see where the mindset of what good music is from the adults and the kids being led into this other thing which is in fact a very lowered version. It's just we can't recognize it anymore because we all love it for its nostalgia and the soundtrack of our lives that it became. And there, in fact, is full-spectrum programming on a level that I can't put enough adjectives around. It is so all-encompassing and overwhelming that it's pretty clear that it would be difficult for a human mind to ignore. You know, Jason was mentioning, uh, could you imagine if Bernays uh, was using all these techniques with social media like Facebook and other things, and then we both laughed because we realized in a way he is. This is a roadmap. You know, these ideas we're expressing were the roadmap that was created. The ideas have never been lost. And I think you could honestly say that Facebook and social media are being run on the backs of these ideas. I mean, there's all that, Jason. It's just scary. If Bernays was still around today, obviously they're using his techniques. There's no doubt about that. But if that brilliant mind was being used against us in the 2020s, good grief. Well, his foundational things that we're outlining here certainly are being used. But you make a good point. Was there something incredibly special about this man? Was it just that his intelligence was so far above everyone else around him? Uh, was it his connections? These things are hard to know, but I think we can understand he was absolutely brilliant uh, above most people. He had connections that most people will never have, uh, going back to Freud and all these things. But the truth is, is all these techniques, they just got better. And by the time we got to the digital age, they got tested, uh, both in digital environments and in the real world. To some degree, you could say that everything about this silly cold nonsense scaring the hell out of the world is also a test because all the data of what happens and how people react, that too is being looked at. So it's a heck of a thing. To show just how good Bernays had become already, and we're still in the 19-teens, there are these accounts on how he helped get the ballet to be a thing in America. Bernays' stints in journalism had shown him where he could cut corners. Would a reader recognize that the ballet's press person had written the Vanity Fair story about the ballet? Just in case someone might notice, he shuffled the letters of his name around and became Aburn Edwards. The Ladies' Home Journal wouldn't run promotional photographs for fear its readers might be offended by skirts that didn't reach below the knees. A problem Bernays also had a solution to. For $600, he engaged a pair of painters to add some length to the ballerina's skirts, and the pictures ran in a two-page color spread that reached millions of unknowing subscribers. This is obviously the days before Photoshop, and yet he accomplished the same thing. Then there was the problem of how to make the press pay attention to Flores Rivales, the principal ballerina in Scheherazade. Bernays tried calling a press conference, but only the morning telegraph showed up. So a short time later, Bernays had Rivales photographed in a tight-fitting fringed gown at the Bronx Zoo with a long, harmless snake draped around her body. The seductive shot was distributed across the country with a caption saying the subject had selected a cobra, but through her charm and beauty had rendered it harmless and that she could be seen almost every day in Bronx Park, musing over the reptile's sinuous movements. 
Newspapers ran that story on page one, which Bernays thought splendid. Quote, I urged Ravales to make a pet snake her trademark and never to travel without one, he recalled. She hesitated, but agreed. Show people intuitively adjust themselves to getting publicity, whatever the method. When I saw how easily Ravales became a national celebrity, I recognized how necessary it was to look behind a person's fame to ascertain whether the basis was real or fictitious. Public visibility had little to do with real value. Quote, without the snake or some equivalent, Flores Ravales, an attractive, provocative, and talented girl, might well have had to wait years for national recognition. The snake took up a long lag time. Oh, the serpent. The serpent. Oh, oh, Bernays. Uh, Maybe they should remake Dirty Dancing, the Bernays ballet saga. Um, But, you know, the underlying thing here is is a thing that we've said before. Human beings learn by example, and it's provable. Children learn from the example of their parents. They're taught by their parents. But this is just kind of a perverse example of that. Bernays stepping in to force his example and it's full spectrum, or it's in such important places it doesn't get ignored. And then, of course, anything that's out of the ordinary, the the media has to jump on and put on page one. Um, this is all about example to human beings, and I can't underscore enough that is a scary thing because everything that happens on the tail of the example is a human decision. You do it to yourself, or you don't do it to yourself. And this comes back to herd mentality that's been proven that a large group of human beings acts vastly different than the individual. So the individual sitting in their home by themselves exposed to this would probably make one decision, where in mass, out at the zoo in Central Park, the herd mind makes a totally different decision. While Bernays was wrapping up his work with the Ballet Russe in 1917, he was presented with another European artistic sensation to introduce to America. Enrico Caruso, the greatest tenor of his time, and one of the music world's greatest characters. Plugging Caruso meant following what was becoming a familiar pattern. First came the press releases, then the visits to editors and publishers. He also coined phrases aimed at capturing public attention, dubbing Caruso the man with the orchid-lined voice. What distinguished this assignment from earlier ones was the amount of time Bernays spent observing the artist up close, staying in the same hotels, and remaining on call 24 hours a day during a swing through Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Toledo. Being on call sometimes meant handling crises, such as the time when, at the banquet following a nine-encore performance in Cincinnati, the great singer suddenly slid under the table and wouldn't come out until Bernays ordered someone to shut a nearby window, the source of a draft that Caruso worried would give him a cold. Another was at Pittsburgh's Shenley Hotel when the tenor insisted on two extra mattresses and 17 more pillows. With help from the hotel manager, Bernays dug up the extra bedding, and Caruso supervised the construction of a triple-tiered bed with pillows placed around the edges to keep out breezes. Another time was when a hotel wedding party on the floor below was keeping Caruso awake. He called Bernays, who called the manager, who called the revelers, who, when they heard who the complainant was, willingly agreed to be relocated nine floors down. Of course, Bernays was well compensated for his labors as advance man and nursemaid. The Metropolitan Musical Borough, who had hired him, took 15% of all concert receipts, and he earned 
25% of the borough's profits, which meant thousands of dollars. What really thrilled the 25-year-old promoter, however, was Caruso's acceptance of him as an equal. Quote, We acted like two boys toward each other, boys who like and understand each other, Edward recalled. We never had to translate our feelings into words. After I had seen him several times, he called me by what I suppose was an Italian diminutive added to my name, Bernese. Bernays was also fascinated by the public's adoration of Caruso. In a lesson he had learned while working with the Ballet Russe, and that he would later apply on behalf of corporate moguls and American presidents, he realized that such impressions could easily be fashioned or reshaped. The overwhelming majority of the people who reacted so spontaneously to Caruso had never heard him before, Bernays wrote. The public's ability to create its own heroes from wisps of impressions and its own imagination and to build them almost into flesh-and-blood gods fascinated me. Of course, I knew the ancient Greeks and other early civilized peoples had done this, but now it was happening before my eyes in contemporary America. The press agent's own image got a lift from Caruso's American visit. In a tribute repeated by other profilers, music critic Pitts Sanborn of the New York Globe referred to Bernays as the Caruso of press agents and the press agent of Caruso. Well, there at the end, they had to tip their hand, didn't they? They start looking at what the ancient Greeks did, bringing the myth, the archetype into this, which actually later gets pulled in. But I guess the main underlying obvious point to make here is there is no separating any of the big transitions in Western life from entertainment and what's going on in the stage. They are one and the same, and it matters not whether you are talking about politics or any other damn thing to include the re release of the latest perfume by Britney Spears. There's never separating entertainment and the programming we're talking about. The rise of Hollywood was in symbiotic relation to the rising trade of public relations, as will probably surprise no one. Edward Bernays was said to find the business of star-making to be too heavy-handed. He did some work with Fox to promote the first fabricated star actress, Theta Berra, for the film Cleopatra, released in 1917. Bernays devised slogans such as, the high cost of kissing the modern Cleopatra is cheap compared with the price Caesar paid. Bernays tried to appeal to the general public, of course, but also high school principals as well to attend screenings of the film by stressing its educational qualities and also milliners and dressmakers by providing fashion inspiration. Bernays never wanted to work with the movie business again after this. He would meet Samuel Goldwyn three years later, whom he said reminded him of a salesman in a perpetual rush. On the film industry as a whole, he commented that it was a crude, crass manufacturing business run by crude, crass men. Oh, brother, pot calling the kettle black much? Um, he, he's doing the same thing just without an industry per se. Um, but it's interesting to see how he pushes Cleopatra, you know, putting out there that it's educational that somehow the supposed time in history is accurately portrayed in some meaningful way. But that's the way it's come, hasn't it? Uh, so much of what we consider history. Like, if we talk to anyone about the Trojan War, what are they going to reference? It ain't going to be Ovid. It ain't going to be the Iliad in this day and age. It's going to be Brad Pitt. So it shows the power and reach here. But it is a bit, actually, it's astoundingly ironic that Bernays had the gumption to call 
Hollywood, a manufacturing business run by crass, crude men. Uh, it's what he's doing just on his own. As a side note, in stark contrast to the insane, over-the-top agenda pushing that we see today, Samuel Goldwyn was said to be so attuned to public opinion that he used to sit in movie theaters with his back to the screen watching audience reactions. He once stated, If the audience don't like a picture, they have a good reason. The public is never wrong. I don't go for all this thing that when I have a failure, it is because the audience doesn't have the test or education or isn't sensitive enough. The public pays the money. It wants to be entertained. That's all I know. (laughs) So Samuel Goldwyn goes in and starts doing his easy test run case studies. He goes into the theater and watches what works on people. Uh, That's really no different than running a model in a computer. It's just in real time in analog days. Uh, It is what it is. You're learning the tricks of your trade, I would estimate. In 1917, we also have the beginning of World War I, or the Great War, as it was known at the time. Within a week of Congress declaring war on April 13, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson issued an executive order creating a new federal agency that would put the government in the business of actively shaping press coverage. The new agency was called the Committee on Public Information, which would take on the task of explaining to millions of young men who were now being drafted into military service and to the millions of other Americans who had so recently supported American neutrality why they should now support war. So let's get this straight. We're going to have a world war and we got to hire the media moguls and Hollywood and the magazines to go out and basically advertise a point of view that will then be taken on by the public. And as is stated here very clearly, at the time, there was an overwhelming sense in society for America's neutrality in terms of aggression. So basically, here it is. It's not just the stage. It's not just all the products. It's not just what's socially acceptable. Now we're talking about the Great War and how it was sold. Edward Bernays wanted to serve his country during this time of war, and he launched his campaign to enlist on April 6th, 1917, the very day that America declared war on Germany. He signed up for the Army, then wrote to top Army and Navy officers to press his case. Finally, he used a contact from the music world to reach a colonel at the recruiting office who scheduled him for a physical. The verdict came back as flat feet and defective vision. Bernays demanded and received a second exam, which produced the same results. He was officially turned down for active duty. After numerous other efforts, Bernays offered his services to the government's Committee on Public Information, the closest thing that existed at the time as a government propaganda agency. The committee was headed by an ex-newspaper man named George Creel. The CPI was designed to generate public support at home and abroad for America's war aims and efforts. The CPI hired Bernays to work for its Borough of Latin American Affairs, based in an office in New York. This was finally his chance to serve, and Bernays recruited Ford, International Harvester, and scores of other American firms to distribute literature on U.S. war aims to foreign contacts and post U.S. propaganda in the windows of 650 American offices overseas. He distributed postcards to Italian soldiers at the front so they could boost morale at home, and he planted propaganda behind the German lines to sow dissent. He organized rallies at Carnegie Hall, featuring freedom fighters from Poland 
Czechoslovakia, and other states that were eager to break free of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And to counter German propaganda, he had American propaganda printed in Spanish and Portuguese and inserted into export journals sent across Latin America. Bernays referred to the work he had done as psychological warfare. To put it succinctly, Bernays had helped win America over to an unpopular war using precisely the techniques he'd used to promote Daddy Longlegs and the Ballet Russe. Well, according to this acceptable history, there's two things going on. There's a war that's going to be in the world, supposedly, or the theater of war, but there's psychological warfare at home to get everyone behind it. But if we go up to the top of where you opened, here's Edward Bernays. He's going to do what Elvis Presley does later. He's going to join the military, but we've heard verbatim the tale that's about to be told here. Sorry, you can't. You've got flat feet. Well, I'll use my contacts in Hollywood to get up to a colonel. Why Why you need a Hollywood contact to get up to a colonel? Go figure. But he does it, and you know, you got flat feet. So you're special, and you're different than everyone else that's come in to join the Army. So we're going to put you in charge of a committee. But the same story verbatim or versions of it is the tale of John Ford, the director. Remember how we were told that he was going to be some big athlete in high school, and then we're later told that he's not even physically fit enough to serve in the military, and yet he ends up playing a covert role, among other things, in the military time and time again. And by the way, all these companies, Ford and all the other ones, these are owned by the the elite bloodlines. It can be shown for most of them. I didn't look for these individual ones, but some of the names I know, like Ford and others, uh, but in in a way... What Bernays does in World War One, with regard to what they call the Great War is very similar on a lot of levels to what John Ford does in World War II. During the war, Edward Bernays pulled off a society-changing stunt that still has daily repercussions in the world today. Back in the early 20th century, men used pocket watches and only women wore wristwatches. Pocket watches were thought to be more precise and certainly more of a device for a gentleman. Watches in general were a rather expensive item, so to purchase one was a bit of an investment. There was, however, what was called a dollar watch manufacturer, Ingersoll, who produced and priced wristwatches for mass purchase. Ingersoll wanted to change the standards of the day and sell wristwatches to the untapped male market. After some research, Bernays discovered that American combat troops in Belgium and France, true to the norm of the time, carried pocket watches. To be able to read their watches when it was dark, they would often strike matches to illuminate their faces. This was a potentially dangerous practice as the light could draw the attention of enemy snipers. With this in mind, Bernays approached U.S. Army officials, bringing up the argument the lives of American troops that could be saved if they were issued wristwatches with luminous dials. This would eliminate the need for the hazardous practice of checking the time by matchlight. The Army authorities acted upon the proposed change and wristwatches began being issued. This change, of course, worked in Ingersoll's favor because, after all, if wristwatches were the fashion of necessity for rugged fighting men, this made them appropriate and fashionable for all men. In the current era, men's wristwatches can go for many hundreds or even thousands of dollars and are quite often seen as a status symbol for financial success. Hence the Rolex, right? This is such an interesting bullet point because of the ingenious nature of how the marketing was done. Uh, everything about it, uh, even introducing the idea of luminous wristwatches, which 
into the early 60s, this was a big deal for watches. How was it illuminated? What did it look like? These types of things. But it goes to show, man, Ingersoll genius, because not only were they going to change culture, but the consumer wasn't going to foot the bill. The United States government was going to buy all these watches, give it to the men. That was going to become the norm. And then after the fact, you had ready-made markets of men that were going to just continue the norm, which, I mean, it's not a one-to-one allegory, but I'll ask the question. If people at this level decided to make it okay for men to wear dresses right now, would they pull it off? And I'm being serious here. Could they pull it off? I'm suggesting you might be surprised by the answer. Next came the Paris Peace Conference, formally opening on January 18th, 1919. Bernays had a role there, of course, taking part as a member of a six-person CPI press team. This time, however, the reviews he received were less glowing. Before the team set sail, Bernays put out a press release announcing the mission, and the New York World ran a story saying the announced object of the expedition is to interpret the work of the peace conference by keeping up a worldwide propaganda to disseminate American accomplishments and ideals. That set off a firestorm, with Republicans in Congress charging that Creel and the CPI were perpetuating their censorship of the press, even though the war was over and skewing coverage to favor the Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson. Creel insisted that the mission was never intended to influence any of the coverage by American reporters, and in a book published two years later, he blamed the whole mess on Bernays' statement, although he didn't name him specifically. James R. Mock and Cedric Larson, in the book Words That Won the War, confirmed that Creel was not uniformly pleased with the post-armistice work of Bernays. The battles over Paris can only be understood in terms of a wider disillusionment in America over the bloody war the nation was emerging from. Many Americans still weren't sure why they had fought or what they'd achieved, and they didn't want to get further entangled overseas. The Senate, sensing such sentiments, voted down the Treaty of Versailles and repudiated the League of Nations, which President Wilson had passionately promoted and which Bernays had enthusiastically embraced. Bernays was convinced he was being made a scapegoat for the failures in Paris, and he sought to set the record straight in his autobiography. Poole, he wrote, had okayed his statement to the press, and Creel was tired or disheartened by the criticism of the senators in the press. But whatever it was, it finally wore him down. I can't understand his giving up. He had always been a fighter. But it is tragically clear that he did not fight to maintain the functioning of our press mission, which he himself had created to serve as a press relations body. I hate to say it over and over, but just come on, man, poppycock. You want to you know what actually is going on here? It's simple. These men have figured out a way to change and influence whole nations with their methods that they're using. And what happened here was their method pissed off Republicans in, in Congress. In other words, it's okay if you screw with all the people of the country, but when you start screwing with us and what we're interested in, there's going to be hell to pay. And it goes to show what's going on here. So men in power knocked it down and went the exact opposite way that they may have gone in the first place, it seems. But this is the main takeaway. I don't think there's any masking what's going on here. Sure, go out and make the American people all wear some crazy kind of shoe that they never would have wore. That's fine. Add a third meal to the day that was never here. Get all the women to smoke. We don't care. But the moment you infringe on what the Republican Congress is interested in, you got problems, bucko. There's the underlying truth of that. But Jason, I think we're close to the top of the hour here. 
We absolutely are, and we've got a long way to go an hour two. All right, here's what I'm going to do before I wrap it up, uh, just so people know the extent. Can you just give quick bullet points about the things that we're going to go over an hour two, just a couple of the, the salient ideas? Well, the big thing that happened with Bernays is right after this whole Paris peace conference debacle, that's when he founds his own public relations business. And that's the standpoint from where he did everything, really, everything that he had learned early on in life. He took this and made himself an absolute powerhouse in how to manipulate people. The predominance of his customers, of course, were major corporations, and he instituted so many things that changed society forever, and we still feel these things to this day. Well, let's ask a simple question. Is it possible that just a man on on you know Fifth Street in New York marketing uh, is doing this on his own and everyone else is okay with it? Or is it more likely that for big ideas that have been proven time and time again to work, starting all the way back with the ballet in the early teens of the 1900s, uh, that the, the power players are on board? How could it be that a single man, just because he wants to, promotes this, that, or the other thing? Isn't it more likely that those things had to be approved, which we found out in the last bullet point when he pissed off a Republican Congress and they basically squashed him like a bug? saying, yeah, you can screw with the people all you want, but you screw with us, bucko, and there's going to be some repercussions. But um, I don't know if we covered it here later. I don't recall, Jason. We made points about Christmas and Bernays. Is that going to come up at all? I didn't do anything with Christmas. Okay, we started in our last round uh, in this to show how Christmas was invented, how it didn't exist, and then it did. Bernays is not per se, the direct source, but he had a hand in it. But the things that we're going to cover in the second hour, uh, you can track them back to show just how far-reaching and creating what we call culture in the United States is, and not just the United States, it's just I'm familiar with here. My point being is that it's true. We really don't have culture like some of the old world places have culture. We like some movies, we watch some TVs, what I always say now, because that's exactly what we're talking about with the power and reach. But that does bring the first hour of episode 204 to a close. We hope you'll join us at Crow 777 Radio. C-R-R-O-W-777-radio.com. Also, Jason and I do a free live stream every Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York Time, where we go to Secrets of Saturn on YouTube, and we give away an hour, sometimes two. Jason does it again on Wednesday at 9 p.m. with Wayne McCroy. There it is. Join us over in the free speech zone at crow 777 radiocom Cheers.